and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. It's episode 108. We last spoke to you a little after the new year when we did that. Um, that was the autopsy on Correa, right? That, that was the last time we chatted uh, about two weeks ago. Yep. We've gotten our bearings. We've kind of recuperated. Um, took a week off because, frankly, there was just nothing to talk about. But there's some stuff to chat about. Tommy Pham is a New York Met. There's a new Hall of Famer. Things of that nature. There's new Mets Hall of Famers. Um, that is also a thing. Uh, Sam Lebowitz, Jack Hendon for the 108th time together here with uh, pitchers and catchers getting closer and closer. Jack, just 21 days away. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm okay. I think we needed the time away on the Correa stuff. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really like totally recovered from that. The Tommy Fam thing didn't totally move it for me, unfortunately. I don't know if maybe there's someone out there. Maybe like Tommy Fam's like parents were like super stoked when uh you know that probably for them made losing out on Carlos Correa worth it. But for yeah. me, I I, I don't know. I mean. I don't it's know been okay. The Hall of Fame stuff is fun. I kind of, we had been talking about that for a couple weeks in terms of, because usually I think what we do around that time of year is we do a little prelude before the voting comes in. So people get a sense for how we feel about things, but there really wasn't that much uh, new in terms of who was coming in. We were fresh off the Bonds Clemens ballot uh, expiring and it just seemed like a good time to just feel it out see what came about. I thought that Scott Rowland getting in was great. We'll talk more about that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm good. Uh, just uh, 21 can you do something for me days before pitchers and catchers. This bro is the Rizzler. The Rizzler. I, I do have 500 followers on Twitter. Actually, I don't. But get me to 500. Get me I, to on the Twitter? Riddler number. Get me to the Riddler number. Yeah, go follow Jack on on Twitter. We have, we both have Twitters. On my Twitter, actually, you'll find um some new content. That's right. I'll, I'll plug that real quick right now. Yeah, Sam Lewis, writer. Jack and I both right are contributing in some fashion to Mets Legends. Yep, we both. I have... haven't made anything yet, but yeah, I, I I have. I turned I turned something around fairly quick. We uh. We're collaborating with Rob Pearsall, a, a one-time guest host of the podcast, also a guest of the podcast, a, po- a real friend of friends of the pod. One-time co-host? Yeah. Um, uh, he asked us if we wanted to contribute a little here and there, and we both were like, yeah, sure. Um, so my first byline at Mets Legends is up. Um, it's a profile that I did on another friend of the podcast, the uh, side armor who was with the Mets last two years, currently still recovering from Tommy John surgery, Tom Hackamer. Um, the article is about Tom, his Tommy John rehab, and how he uses content creation, videos, vlogs, TikToks, Instagram reels, all that stuff to uh, kind of cope with the recovery uh, at this point in his career and in his life. And uh, it was a really interesting chat. And it's up right now. Um, it, it went live about a half hour before Jack and I hopped into the recording tonight at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, the 25th. 
uh, go check that out. It's on Mets Legends. You'll find it on my Twitter and the Mets Legends Twitter as well. Again, my Twitter is at samlebo14. Uh, go give that a read because it was a it was a fun little thing to write. Yeah. Anyways, back to the regularly scheduled content. Shameless plugs out of the way. Before we hop into the Hall of Fame stuff, um, yeah, like you said, really not a whole lot of interesting stuff that was brand new on the ballot this year. We can we can chat about the Carlos Beltran discourse. I was a little surprised about how that shook out this year. Um, there's fresh Todd Helton discourse post ballot reveal, um, which we'll talk about later. But for now, the right-handed hitting outfielder market uh, sped up post Correa. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon looked to be an option for the Mets. They actually had either the high offer or one of the high offers on the table for McCutcheon. Uh, but he wound up turning the Mets down, taking a little less money to return to Pittsburgh on a one-year deal for $5 million. He'll be a pirate once again yeah. in the town where he came up, became a superstar, won an MVP. Uh, if it didn't hurt the Mets, it would have been a really, really cool story. It's still a cool story. I also just think it would have been cool to have uh, a, a guy like McCutcheon who's just extremely fun to root for uh, on the Mets. Yeah, that would have been great. And it's also sad, I think, because you know that this is probably the swan song for Andrew McCutcheon. If he's going back to Pittsburgh, it's sort of the Albert Pujols deal, at least as I think about it. And um, I mean, he's had a great career and uh, I mean, I remember his MVP seasons very early on when the pirates were just starting to get out of that basement. I don't think too many people younger than us might remember that, but it was, he was a really legit like there was a time I think where beneath Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, the next outfielder that people sort of lumped into that conversation was McCutcheon. And like, now I just feel old uh, that that's yeah. sort of coming to an end. Um, I really don't know. Great if, career. I don't know if I want to say this is the swan song. It it certainly feels like it could be given like the optics of him going home here, yeah. but I feel like he's still got enough in the tank. He's been an effective. He definitely team. has enough in the tank. I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's been but it's like, why at that point, why would you spend those years, you know, tweeting about the furry convention? <laughs> like when you can just play for the Mets play, you know, like they're not that far away from Pittsburgh. I don't know. I think he has more than enough left in the tank. I think sometimes people just have to know when to fold them. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's been more than effective as a platoon bat the last couple of seasons um, with the Brewers this year, with the Phillies. I I feel like he would have been a really, really good fit. I think if I were the Mets, I would have at least wanted someone in the realm who could fake it in center, which was why I was more on the Adam Duvall track. Mm-hmm. Um, then McCutcheon, but from a pure vibe standpoint, I thought McCutcheon would have been a great fit. Uh, mm-hmm. Duvall also off the table. Uh, he signed with the Red Sox for one year, seven mil. He'll probably get like a, a a good chunk of playing time there, as will McCutcheon. I mean, that's the other aspect here is that the Mets only had so much playing time to offer. Yeah. Um, and McCutcheon and Duvall are probably going to play every day in Pittsburgh and Boston. Yeah. So the Mets wound up with. Thomas Pham, um, who is also not really a guy who can fake it in center, whatever. He's a corner outfielder, right-hand hitter, uh, spent 2022 
beefing with Jock Peterson and splitting time between the Reds and the Red Sox, uh, putting up below average offensive numbers. The contract, which is official at this point, uh, one year, six mil, and he can make up to two more million dollars in performance incentives. That's his uh, that's his rate here. He hit. 236, 312, 374 with an 89 WRC plus. Uh, but you'll find it more interesting to note here, much more effective against left-handed pitching. He was not strictly a platoon bat. He was an everyday player this year, um, especially in Cincinnati. He was not very good at it, especially yeah. against righties. But he was much more effective against lefties. He slugged 446 against lefties compared to 374 overall. So... Uh, that's really why the Mets are paying him here. Yeah. There are things to look for too, I think, that might give you reason to believe that he's got it, you know, he's got something left in the tank. I think that uh going from every day to probably not playing every day might for some guys that's actually beneficial, um, especially as they get older, because Fam's going on his age 35 season. Uh, that's not, you know, exactly young and he's been playing for a long time he only came up in 2015 but he's been a professional for like 17 years now um I'm interested to see what the experiential overlap with Jeff Albert does here uh those guys had some time together in the Cardinals minor league system before Albert jumped to Houston and then eventually after fam had left went back to St. Louis. Um, I wonder if maybe that had any sway in fam being the guy that they went with. I think your point about the playing time is a pretty salient one, though. I think that Duvall and McCutcheon probably have a little bit more merit as everyday players than fam does, given what happened last year for him. Um, Billy Epler like gave this, you know, in the introductory statement, I guess, because it wasn't really, you know, there was no press conference for Tommy Fam. He cited uh a couple, I guess, tools, some are more dog in him than others, right? Like his ability to grind through at-bats. What does that mean, right? Like, what does that really mean? Can't they all grind through at-bats, but like stay within the strike zone, impact the baseball and run the bases? Those were tools that Epler cited. And when you look at the Savant page, it's actually, in some regards, it's actually kind of accurate. I mean, he's He's 66th percentile in sprint speed, which, you know, it's it's not Terrence Gore, but for a 35-year-old, it's also like not, it was a little surprising for me. I didn't think that Fam still had 66th percentile in there. Um, yeah, 88th in chase rate. Like I would have figured he was closer to average, like purely yeah. average in sprint speed. 66 is like, it's closer to average than like way above average, but it's still like, it's, it's, it, it's still kind of nice. And the hard hit and average exit below numbers are still good. He was like 93rd percentile on average exit below last year, which is weird because, you know, the expected statistics for him were not great. Like his XBA was down to like 32nd percentile. His, I mean, the big thing though, is the K percentage. I think he has some flags between 21 and 22 that remind me a little bit of what happened with Darren Ruff this past year. And I really think that what's going to this, like, I mean, if fam has a really bad spring training and Darren Ruff has a really good spring training, this could go a different way. I think those two are sort of competing for the same job right now. Um, either one could be 2022 Darren Ruff. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm more inclined to believe that Tommy fam is going to be the better player here, but um 
you know, they're both getting up there in age. They both have a very specialized skill set, as Epler has pointed out. Um, is it better than what was left on the table? I guess, like, I don't think he's better than Jerickson Profar, but you know, it's got to be a right handed hitter. We got to have a right handed hitter. Um, and like, sure, he's better than like Robbie Grossman and, um, he's better than Tyler Naquin. I mean, I don't know. There aren't that many options left, which is the other part of it here. Yeah. It was, it was more a situation in which they kind of just needed to get a right-handed hitter who could play the outfield period. Yeah. And the options started to dwindle like McCutcheon and Duval suddenly were off the board. Um, and then you're kind of left with, okay, we can go fam. Robbie Grossman is a little bit better as a right-hand hitter. Yeah. Like, they needed a fourth outfielder. Yeah. So I don't think they went into this offseason saying, yeah, we're going to sign Tommy Fam. We're going to go out of our way to do that. He just kind of fell into their laps as the best guy left available that fit what the offense needed. Yeah. Uh you know, and in the wake of, of Carlos Correa, should you know, if Carlos Correa was still a Met, it doesn't really matter what Tommy Pham yeah. does offensively. Now you're kind of hoping that he's able to pick up the slack a little bit more, especially as a right hand hitter, uh, especially against left handed pitching. You're a little more short up uh on the longer side of the platoon, which right. is good because short side platoon guys are not exactly the most valuable piece on a on a major league roster which is why replacing Darren Ruff is not like the most important thing. I know the Mets fans yeah. are sick and tired of him from the two months they saw him do absolutely nothing. I know they want him off the team. I would not be opposed to not having to watch him again. Uh, he might have something left in the tank. Who knows? I don't really I don't know what's going on with Darren Ruff. Yeah. Maybe the Mets know what's going on. He also as we've discussed on this podcast before is simply uh, too expensive to just cut right now. Not in terms of money, right? They gave up too much for the guy. They yeah, know, I'm sure, I'm sure they know that, especially at this point, they might not have realized it when they pulled the trigger on the trade, but I'm sure they know it now. Um, the Whatever happened to sunk cost. Yeah. I mean, that's the other argument on the flip side. Yeah. Is that you just say, screw it, we can't undo the trade. So if he's worthless to us now, then we just get rid of him. But I mean, these are baseball men and there is always the pride factor. And the baseball men are not going to just say, you know what? It's a bad trade. Let's cut ties because they're going to say it's a trade I made and we need to recoup some value out of it. Yeah. So that there's always that factor. Yeah. Oh. Well, they're putting a lot of eggs in the basket too, because it's not just rough and fan, but there's also Vientos, there's potentially Francisco Alvarez, there's still Eduardo Escobar. Um, I don't know. It's it, with fam, at least it's something in the way of a buck proofing too, because now you don't have to worry about that fourth outfielder being a fast guy with a glove, which we've been getting a retreat of like every year for the last six years um we can finally i think sort of take a break from that um yeah, i don't like really tim, have much hmm? like tim lacastro can just be a high priority non-roster invitee now and you'll need of... guys in triple a they yeah. always need guys in triple a especially hitters 
Um, I mean, you ask them about bullpen additions right now, and that's that's the party line right now is we want optionable guys. Yeah, which we can get into next. Right? Is that really the way? I mean, I don't know. I I don't. I should get the depth chart out in front of me. It's been a long time since I really looked at this roster. Spent a lot of time just looking at the Carlos Correa details, which continued to come out, by, by the way, in the wake of our autopsy. But I don't really have the energy to talk about which doctors the Mets spoke to. We know that this whole thing was a was an embarrassment, right? But it, it's all to say I haven't been paying as much attention as I probably should be to the state of their bullpen. Um, I mean, as it stands, I'm on fan graphs right now. John Curtis and Eliezer Hernandez like still make the team in this equation. I don't see why you wouldn't find somebody who makes Hernandez an optionable, right? Like you could probably still sign someone and still stick to your whole, we have optionable arms uh, argument. I don't know. I think that even if you're not going to go get Zach Britton or Andrew Chafin, like, I think Alex Young could have been an interesting pick, but the, the Royals grabbed him, and so now he's he's out of there. Um, Red Sox just DFA'd Matt Barnes. Uh, he might be cooked, but like the velo doesn't suggest he's that cooked. Uh, could be a buy low thing. Um, I don't know what their plan is with Tyler McGill because um, I'm now realizing he actually is in their minor league uh portion of their depth chart i don't know i i think that there are ways that you can maximize your talent while sticking to this party line i don't know if it needs to i don't know if if i really buy that like they're done um but you know maybe they think they are and i mean we definitely said this about their pitching depth last year and it turned out to be okay like we might be wrong um i'm willing i'm willing to be proven wrong on this but um I don't know. I mean, what optionable guys are out there? Like who have has anyone actually suggested any names here? Well, I mean, Barnes wouldn't be an optionable guy. Yeah. I'm looking I mean, the guys that I see right now, they're actually you know what this might also be is, you know, Zach Green is rule 5 and Steven Nagosik is out of options. Um so those two guys probably have to be carried on the roster. Maybe what ends up happening is if like Zach Green doesn't look very good in spring training and some team cuts a guy, you know, the way that like, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like a couple of years ago, I know the Pirates got rid of Jared Hughes at the 11th hour before opening day. And I think the Brewers grabbed him and he turned out to be a steal for them that year. Like maybe you strike it rich with someone who gets cast away right before the season starts like a Darren O'Day type of thing. Right. Like it, it that's an example that worked against the Mets, but, um, hey, you know, maybe Gary Blevins. gets flipped then, um, Jerry Blevins and Alex Torres. I know that's one right. Goal. Jerry Blevins. Exactly. That's a those great goal. Those were both mid to late spring training trades. Alex Torres yeah. and Jerry Blevins, both were left-handed relievers. I know one was more effective than the other and the other was more known for his hat um than the other but uh there's there's moves to make there's things to do there's shenanigans to be had in this period of the offseason i mean we're really entering prime non-roster invitee uh part of the year like it's really getting towards that part of the year um where you see guys sign on uh to just be in spring training with somebody 
So we'll see what kinds of pitchers and players go to teams in, in that kind of way. We'll see who the Mets bring in. I, I can't really recall. I mean, is Tim LaCastro the, the most notable non-roster invitee they've had so far? I think there's, there's gotta be one or two other. LaCastro was an interesting poll. Um, Well, there is Jose Peraza. He did come back. That's true. Um, That might be kind of fun. Uh, Damn, let's see. This is like... I feel like there was one more who I um, never remember. Well, they brought back Tommy Hunter. Oh, you know who they really like is Jimmy Yacobonis because um, he's got the Frisbee slider or whatever. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, Um, They're definitely, I think, hoping that he'll have a good spring and maybe he becomes like the cheaper sort of... There isn't really a righty comp here to, to Jerry Blevins, even though... A righty Jerry Blevins would be nothing like Jimmy Yacobonis. Um, I don't know. It, it's haven't been doing as much thinking about this. My scouting game is not what it used to be. Um, yeah. Anyway, Carlos Correa. It suffices to say, yeah. That, um, and Andy Martino is out here saying that the Mets do not seem likely to be signing Andrew Chafin and Zach Britton. That's the point. Yeah. yeah. The, does that mean the Mets are done making major league additions? Who knows? I mean, there's a, again, we talk about it every week. Talk about it every week out in Disneyland or is it Disney World out in Anaheim? There's Disneyland. Disneyland. Landis. Yeah. Okay. I haven't been. I've been to the one in Florida, not the one in California. Yeah, that's Disney World. Oh, yeah. but yes, Disneyland. They're not selling Disneyland, right? No, no. But Artie Moreno, this is news that has yeah. been since the last time we talked to you. That if you're not familiar, Angels aren't getting sold. They had bidders. Right. They had bidders. Artie Moreno said, "Never mind." He pulled a Jeff Wilpon, pulled out of a deal, and I don't think that this one's going to turn around and happen anyways with Steve Cohen. So, if there was a reason not to trade Shohei Otani during the offseason, namely being you don't want to be the guy who trades the franchise piece and then sells the team you don't want to do that before you leave town uh you're not leaving town anymore Artie moreno you don't have an excuse not to trade the guy if he wants to get out if he wants to get out of anheim now go ahead and do it to the mets notably anyways uh there's yeah, Brian get reynolds yeah do it go go sign show Itani. go trade Take for the him. rendon contract off their hands if that's what it takes do whatever you got yeah. Alvarez, Beatty, the whole lot. Do whatever you got to do. I don't care. I want to show Otani on the mess. Yeah. Go do it. I Maybe don't trade for Brian Reynolds, even though he's good. I just don't see as clear a fit, especially with Fam now. I don't think they're going to add another pure outfielder. Um, yeah. Can we give them Joey Lucchese for Andy Rodriguez? I would like Andy back. Because... You think they would do that? Did Were you aware of this discourse going on on Twitter the other day? No, okay. I have okay. a job, so no. Uh, sick job, Brad. So, yeah, that was me, and I realized as soon as I said that that wasn't cool. So, well, I, I have a job. It's just not in. It's part time, and it's service industry work, and it's not in my preferred field. No, it's a it's an important job. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> going off going off on a quick tangent here. This was, I think, it was Jeff Paternostro over with Baseball Prospectus. The other day, uh-huh. who was he tweeted he was thinking about Mets prospects and the guys they've traded away. 
and he realized that like the the current regime the post Brody Van Wagenen regime is has gotten has had so much bad luck with trading prospects whereas Brody almost none of those pieces he traded away are notable in any regard they have all been busts and or have seen their prospect shine fade yeah whereas you have guys like Andy Rodriguez who was a bit of a lottery pick right but not like one who was particularly highly regarded when he got traded for Joey Lucchese and yeah. then went to the Pirates and now he's like a very like a like a top half of the top 100 prospects in baseball like he's in that top 50 area yeah he's good He's a guy. It's it's funny. I mean, I don't think about those trades as much now as like a function of regimes within front offices. I think of them more so in terms of like, all right, look at the history of the Brody Van Wagen and trades. Even on the smaller level, the trades always had to involve players that might have had a chance as depth, right? Like the, it wasn't even the fact that like they did the Kalanick for Diaz thing, right? Like I'm so beyond that. But like, you know, trading triple um, A arms for, you know, Ariel Jurado and uh, Robinson Chirinos, uh, you know, a month of him. Right. Like things like that. I almost look at them and, and judge them as things that the Mets had to do back then because they weren't smart enough to actually develop infrastructure to develop their own players. Like all they could do was just draft guys hope they looked good enough to trade for someone supposedly good and then trade them for that supposedly good player. Um, I don't think this regime has the same excuse though, right? Like they have, they put a lot of resources into improving their R and D and self scouting and like the JD Davis, Nick Zwack, Carson Seymour for Darren Ruff trade still happened. And it's just kind of like, and not only is this something that like, happened very unfortunately but like is kind of continuing to drive decision making where it's like well we can't get rid of rough because we conceivably they're not getting rid of him because they put so much into it like i almost i mean jeff's not only is jeff right about the fact that like there have been pretty pronounced l's post brody but like there's not you don't have the same excuse really for for those decisions like you just made bad decisions um yeah like i don't know I mean, not to pile on like joey lucchese because you know injuries are injuries and at the time it looked like a great depth pickup because um you know the padres were oozing with pitchers and he was available but um yeah they probably could have looked for better guys to deal than andy yeah i looking at it specifically um jeffrey's right hand man uh in the the baseball perspective pod baseball prospectus podcast world uh jared seidler kind of laid out exactly uh what the answers to this question are yeah the question specifically the original tweet i have in front of me now is that looking at it with current 2023 eyes who is the best prospects that the mets traded in the bbw era versus now so Jarrett suggests that the answer is Simeon Woods Richardson, who has made his major league debut, I believe. Yeah. 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 
still prospect eligible. Yes. Is not on baseball prospectus's top 101 prospects, which they just dropped, I think, last week. Uh, there are five Mets prospects on it, by the way. Uh, and then the second best he suggests is Blake Taylor, the okay. left-handed reliever who has been effective for the Astros generally, but also really wasn't a factor for them this past postseason. Yeah. And he said the third cat, the third best is still just probably Kelnick, even though Kelnick is uh, not very good. Um, almost famously at this point, really can't. Right. I would have thought that uh, Valerio would have been up there. I remember but a lot of, yeah. He, yeah. He's an example of a guy who really just hasn't done much prospect wise. Like he's kind of fallen off. Same with like a Kennedy Corona who also went with Blake Taylor in the Jake Marisnik trade. Yeah. Marisnik solid. Whereas yeah. the, he calls it the Alderson 2.0 front office, the post. Well, it's just Bryn. It's Bryn Alderson. It's, it was Sandy too. Yeah. Um. The, uh, the post, the immediate post Brody era, I guess this is all pre Epler. Yeah. Was, he calls it a disaster. Andy Rodriguez in the minor deal for Lucchese. Pete Crow Armstrong for a rental of Javi Baez. And he said that even the Lindor trade, which we're all pro Lindor trade, obviously. Yeah. They he says they happily dealt Andres Jimenez at what turned out to be the low point of his trade value. So yeah. yeah. I mean brings up a good point. Those are kind of like like namely Andy Rodriguez and Peter Armstrong, both of whom are in the BP one one oh one. Yeah. Namely, are big losses for players of not very high value. Yeah, I didn't realize how good PCA was last year, too. I remember the shoulder injury being the big news story, but he rebounded from that pretty well. Um, oh, he there's some swing and miss, but like, yeah, he's legit. I mean, he's yeah. easily one of, if not the best defensive outfielders in the minor leagues. And, and if he develops any power at all to sustain the swing and miss, He's like a definite starting big leaguer. Yeah, he would have been great to have in the Mets system still, without a doubt. Um, I I do wonder, though, and this is also a tangent. Well, I guess we'll just, we're going to have to start a fresh Zoom uh, before we jump into the Hall of Fame stuff. I do consider and I do wonder if, if PCA was still in the Mets system and if he was even a season, season and a half away at this point, I wonder if they still go out and sign Brandon Nimmo to an eight-year contract instead of maybe just finding a stopgap. I think that'd be really bad process. It would probably Um, be really bad process, but we also don't know how this front office behaves in that regard. Yeah, I I don't know. Or we kind of do. Wait, we kind of do know how they would behave in that scenario because they just did it with Brett Beatty. They were fully prepared to sign Correa anyways, despite Beatty being here and ready and available. Sure. As a third baseman. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that they still are in a phase of looking at the good prospects they have as guys that they can trade for ready talent while they actually try and churn out more good prospects. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think they would have totally. I also think because Nimmo was really in a league of his own among the center field class, like I don't think they would have been that keen on just kind of letting him go for Pete Crow Armstrong when you could like have both of them, right? Like that's always a great option. Yeah. Um, or you could have Nimmo, who's Brandon Nimmo, um, and you could have just used Pete Crow Armstrong in a deal somewhere else. I mean, that's sort of part and parcel with the Jared Kalanick issue when they traded him, which was like, all right, you're trading him before he really has his, his value, um, you know, before he does a whole lot. Like you're just saying that he's worth, you know, a really, really good closer. I'm not going to reopen the Kalanick Diaz box. Cause like, I love Edwin Diaz and like you, you know, pointed out Kalanick is, is Kalanick. It's, it's a very much a work in progress, but no, I never thought about the trading uh, in that way. I still am not totally sure if I can like draw absolute conclusions because like post Brody is a lot of different people, right? It's like, it's Jared Porter for a second. It's Zach Scott. It's the Alderson sandwich. Um, it's yeah. bad through and through. Like it's still very embarrassing, but I wonder if it's different if you actually have someone quite you know just someone who deserves it doing the whole thing yeah and remains to be seen what happens with epler here i mean the mets really haven't traded prospects period lately but i don't know i just found it interesting obviously there's process questions on both ends of it but it's just kind of funny to see how everyone was freaking out about the brody trades and it it never really hurt the mets is what i'm what i'm saying we really wanted to talk about today was hall of fame which as of time of recording um, we've known that Scott Rowland is a Hall of Famer for like 27, 26 hours. And good for Scott Rowland. He joins Fred McGriff, who was uh, elected to the Contemporary Players Committee, I believe it's called. Yeah. Uh, basically a, a different version of the Veterans Committee that occasionally gets players like Ted Simmons inducted. Uh, Fred, Fred McGriff, probably a better player than Ted Simmons. I don't know if that's a hot take. Doesn't matter. Uh, I don't think it's a hot take. McGriff McGriff is one of the guys that like everyone wanted him in, and he finally got it. Yeah, uh, it was it was cool. I think Roland, in a way, shares some similarities with McGriff in that they kind of picked up steam towards uh, as they continued to grow on the ballot. McGriff yeah. just never got over that hump, whereas Roland, and I think Roland was benefited by some weaker ballots that kind of gave him more attention on those ballots, gave some more, uh, got some votes funneled towards him. And also you had the people who, they didn't want to vote for Bonds or Clemens, so they're willing to kind of consider everybody else that's not named Bonds or Clemens. So, Yeah, blank ballots are boring. Right. right. That too. So we have Scott Rowland voted in, the only one voted in this year by the writer's uh at 76.3 percent of the vote which i i think is like only, he only cleared it by like three or four votes yeah that you got to clear yeah. that 75 percent. it was very close this time around yeah um, the numbers that uh ryan thibodeau was uh tracking if you're not familiar with him he does really really great hall of fame stuff he amasses all the public ballots in the two or three months prior to the announcement, keeps track of those numbers, sees 
how players are tracking based on their performance the previous year. Like, oh, Billy Wagner has picked up eight votes already this year from people who didn't vote for him last year. His numbers are trending in the right direction. Wagner wound up getting 68% of the vote uh, after 51 last year. After 11% in his first ballot, he seems to be the next guy to take the jump along with Todd Helton, who missed the vote by about seven or eight ballots at 72.2%. The most interesting thing, yeah, he should get it. There's been some fresh discourse about it, about uh, Rockies players in the Hall of Fame in general and cores, as there always is with Helton, but he's Mm -hmm. trending in a direction where it seems like he's going to get it. Uh, and then in terms of Roland, Roland is interesting because he started out in his first year on the ballot at 10.2%. According to Sarah Langs, who's obviously a great, great researcher, the lowest first year percentage of any candidate to wind up getting voted in is Scott Roland. That's insane. Right there, ten point two percent, and I think it only took him six ballots. Yeah, to jump from that. It's it's super encouraging to see something like that too, because it means that people are willing to be convinced, which I think has been a long-standing complaint about the people that get to fill out these ballots is that they just sort of have the way that they you know they have the glasses that they wear and they're not willing to change the prescription. It's just always going to be about you know, like MVP votes and and wins and losses and gold gloves and every subjective measurement out there. But I think that there really was a case if you stack rolling up against historically third baseman, he's better than a lot of third basemen that are already in the Hall of Fame. Um, I think that it was a great pick. I mean, I was sort of on this boat a, a year or two ago with him. Um, good defense, great offense. Um it's been kind of exhausting to hear like, you know, I don't know. I just, especially after like the last few years where I personally feel like I've definitely been let down by the voting and feel like I haven't gotten much out of it. Like, this is really a a good one. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but like, I just don't care that Keith Hernandez isn't in the hall of fame right now. Like I don't, it. I'm not like, you know, I'm not going to, make this about Don Mattingly. I'm not going to complain that, you know, Lou Whitaker isn't in or Mark Grace isn't in. Like, it's just kind of, this is a deserving player who got in, who needed a case, got a case, um, and actually climbed. I mean, Larry Walker took a little bit longer to get his case in the door than Scott Rowland did. Like, this is, an, I think, a very encouraging development. And also you look at guys who are, you know, Billy Wagner gaining votes is also really, really big because that's someone who we've talked about at length across multiple seasons as, like, someone that deserves a lot more credit as one of the better relief pitchers of all time. Um, I think he'll get it next. I think Helton is pretty much going to be – the next i feel like every year going forward if it hasn't already been a case there will be somebody on that ballot who people are really trying to push in the way that they pushed larry walker in at the last minute i think helton is already sort of filling those shoes um i don't know i mean that's that's sort of where i am on the you know on the rolling issue i'm i'm happy about it and like Roland wasn't even someone who I had much experience like watching. Um, yeah. Didn't have much connection to the Mets, but also he was a little bit like before my time. But there were a lot of players in his, 
I think, tier who were getting the, you know, do they or don't they, right? There's like Bobby Abreu, Jeff Kent. Um, Gary Sheffield is sort of of that ilk, but he's a little bit more steroid era. Um, Roland getting in, I think, actually sets a, a much clearer example for what kind of player you're looking for in the hall of fame and i think he's a hall of famer i don't look at him and see like hall of very good or whatever i think that's kind of also a very annoying uh like talking point about how how like exclusive the hall of fame should be like you can have tears inside the hall of fame if you want like who cares yeah i mean like we have the term inner circle hall of famer like yeah. that's a term that we have and people use it uh it exists Obviously, right. there is there's no actual line of demarcation between the tiers in the Hall of Fame. Like you're a Hall of Famer if you're in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But I I do find the discourse around the Hall of Fame to be rather exhausting. I find that some of the people who have votes have a really really hard time justifying who they vote for with any sort of logic. Uh, I think that this mentality that we need to keep baseball's hall of fame you know clean you know clean in terms of cheating but also we want to keep it's exclusive pristine we don't want to muddy the gene pool is a horrible way to put it but like that's the vibe it's gatekeeping yeah it's like we're looking at the hall of fame here and yes baseball predominantly has one of if not the most exclusive Hall of Fames of the core four sports in North America. But like, we don't have to not vote for a guy just because you didn't watch him and think as you're watching him, oh, that's a Hall of Famer. Like, it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. And in yeah, the case and also of the numbers, the, the voting numbers will always speak for themselves. You know what I mean? Like, you yeah. talk about inner circle, like guys who are getting in unanimously, um, first ballot, uh, you know, you'll always have a narrative of how someone gets to the Hall of Fame attached to their Hall of right? Like Ro- Roberto Alomar getting in, Ted Simmons getting in, uh, Harold Baines getting in, right? A lot of questionable, you know, nominees. Like people don't look at them and say, oh, well, they're in the Hall of Fame, so it doesn't matter. Like there is still a, a way that you can talk about these players that is not in like absolutes or or, or black and white as far as whether they were hall of fame or, or or not good enough for it um i think it's kind of it's kind of like intellectually dishonest to think you know to look at it any other way um yeah and that's not even getting into the cognitive dissonance that goes on when people vote for just unadulterated horrible people oh yeah that too right because like andrew jones is still racking up votes even though he he like, got a 15% bump this year. Yeah. He'll he'll keep getting bumps. Omar Vizquel is not going away. Omar Vizquel um, on the public ballots was sitting at 8%. When the rest of the ballots got revealed yesterday, he jumped to 20% on the private Yeah, ballots. and that's that happened last year too. People are ashamed to vote for him and they still do it. Um I don't know. I feel like we we do get into this segment like every year where we have to go through like just how many people on this ballot suck um yeah i mean just i we say it every year boy i am so glad i don't actually have to make and or justify this decision over 300 people vote for the hall of fame like i think there are 328 total ballots this year 
Um, and I just the amount of people that jump through mental hoops to vote for the players that they feel like are Hall of Famers uh, is occasionally ridiculous. I mean, Francisco Rodriguez got over 10 percent of the vote this year. Yeah, he's that's also, gonna be, he's also that's gonna not. be super annoying. By the way, like yeah. this is this was already starting in the closer his discourse. The closer discourse, like my God, touch grass. You don't need it. Doesn't need to be like. Did you like them or not? Like I know we just did the whole. Let's not be exclusive about things, but like let's also be objective here. Yes, Francisco I'm sorry, Rodriguez, Francisco Rodriguez. You are like, not a Hall of Famer. Closers are so touch and go that like part of the Billy Wagner thing is that like he was almost always go. Um, it was always like, he's on, he's throwing hard. They can't hit a slider. He never had a year where his ERA was like above 290. K-Rod has had multiple clunkers. Um, yeah. I, thing, I don't know. The thing with relievers is based on where we are right now with relievers in the hall of fame. If we're to assume that Billy Wagner does get in, which he's trending in that direction, you have to be one of two things to be a Hall of Famer. You need to be mind-numbingly effective. Yeah. Like, historically effective in terms of preventing runs, missing bats, all of that stuff. Being clutch in safe situations, whatever. Or... And that's the Billy Wagner argument is that no one has missed more bats consistently as a left-handed reliever. No, it has been more effective for as long a period of time as a left-handed reliever. No one has flatly been as dominant as Billy Wagner was as a back-end left-handed reliever and maybe period as a reliever, not named Mariano Rivera. The other thing that you can have as a reliever is just a ginormous amount of saves. Right. Well, while still being pretty darn effective. Which that's is what you Trevor have. Hoffman. That's yeah. the Trevor Hoffman or Lee Smith argument. Yeah. You got to be one or the other or both. Obviously, Mariano Rivera, both. Obviously, Dennis Eckersley, Bruce Souter, yeah. uh, Raleigh Fingers. While those were guys who made it in before we really had a concrete idea of what it is to be an elite closer. Those guys were elite closers for their time period. Mm-hmm. Those guys also pretty much had both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't Francisco know. Rodriguez, like he had the one in two thousand eight. He he was he had a handful of really great seasons with with the Angels. He yeah. he had the single season saves record for a minute. He's not a Hall of Famer, man. No, no. It's and that's sort of like you know he kind of. It's not the same as David Wright, obviously, but I do draw a little bit of a hard line in my voting where like if I had a ballot, I I simply don't go for guys who like were really, really good for seven or eight years and then kind of spent the next 10 to 11 years not doing much of anything. Like this is an example of a guy who was really, really good, but as soon as he became a Met, Francisco Rodriguez became like just a just a guy like just a reliever um and that's sort of that's when it's when you're a relief pitcher already it, it works against you um so i don't know i i only compare it to right because that's an example of someone who was like on a track to get to the hall of fame um but then things sort of got in the way and and yeah. and you know right 
stopped playing regularly and yeah um, for reasons that weren't his fault um before we touch on right and next yeah. year's ballot and then i think we'll probably finish up from there yeah we haven't even mentioned carlos beltron yet yeah who debuted on the ballot this year at 46.5 percent mm-hmm. i had a pretty good inclination he wouldn't make it this year based on how the public ballots were trending yeah I was a little surprised to see him below 50. I understand why. I do we, we know, sorry to interrupt, but do we know what the split is between public and private? I don't off the top. I don't off the top. Okay. Of my That's fine. I, it's complicated. So in my mind, mm-hmm. Carlos Beltran, based off of his on-field performance, his career as a player in general, Hall of Famer. Like he screams like a guy who could be first ballot to me. Yeah. I mean, few switch hitters in the last 50 years have been as good. Few center fielders in the last 50 years have been good at as many things as he has been good at. The power hitting, the the stealing bases, the defense and center, the overall offensive aptitude he hit in the 280s a handful of times. That Astros thing really holds him back. Yeah. And I just, I don't know if, I don't think the role that he played in the cheating scandal will hold him out of the hall. I do think it'll take him four or five years to get in instead of one or two. Yeah. Uh, I am very, very curious to see what type of jump he takes next year, if any at all, because... Mm -hmm another pillar of hall of fame voting discourse is the idea of a first ballot hall of famer, right? Yeah. Is that there are some people who vote for the hall of fame that will only vote for guys that they think are deserving of being in on the first ballot. That Mm -hmm. if you do not deserve to be in on the first ballot, you do not deserve to be a hall of famer period, which I think is, I think it's gross. Stupid. I think it's a really point of voting. I think it's so dumb to, not vote for a guy because you think that he could make it five or six years down the road, but you don't think he deserves to be on year one. So he doesn't deserve to be on period. I think is ridiculous. I do think that some of that is happening here that there are probably at least a handful of writers out there who didn't vote for Beltron, but are ultimately fine with voting for him. They just didn't want him to be a first ballot hall of famer. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. We're going to have to litigate the Astros thing for a while. But it's also like, at this point, Sam, it's pretty clear to me that like, people don't care about this stuff anymore, unless it has to do with Carlos Beltran, like Alex Cora gets to do his thing. AJ Hinch gets to do his thing. We all wanted Carlos Correa on the Mets. Um, No one cares at all about Brian McCann's role in this. So it doesn't have to do with the veteran thing either. Carlos Beltran is just the fall guy for all of this. I think Um, whatever role he had is like the mastermind. Like he has a manager, he has coaches, he reports to so many levels of authority. And there are so many levels of accountability above him that like anyone could have stepped in and been like, that's not happening. We will get in trouble. No more of this or you're suspended. You could have stepped in at any point, but the people who didn't, like, nothing happens to them. They're going to be totally fine. It's just Beltran who has to take this on the chin. 
for that reason alone, I simply cannot look at the Astros issue anymore seriously. Um, I just, I, I, and I just don't care to either. I think the first ballot thing is stupid. I think the Astros thing though is even dumber. And, and by the way, I did look up, uh, what I found were the numbers, basically a total tally of Ryan Thibodeau's ballots that had come in before the vote was announced. And Beltron had like 55% of the vote before private ballots went in and he went down to 45%. So again, like you're seeing this trend of the, the kind of brain that's holding Carlos Beltran out of this. It's like the same exact brain that thinks Omar Vizquel should be in. It's got nothing to do with like, you know, moral integrity or or whatever we want to call it it's it's just like people just need to be i think more for real about about yeah. the whole thing i mean um, i mean a not insignificant portion of those private ballots probably didn't vote for beltron because of the astros cheating scandal but also voted for viskel right despite exactly it's despite yeah. the domestic violence stuff domestic violence uh like abusing a, a a disabled bat boy like yeah the sexual abuse stuff like come on i mean yeah like just say, the, just, say just say you don't you don't care or that you don't read the paper i don't know but it's either it's, one's yeah, that is an example of cognitive of cognitive dissonance right there. i mean like i i just don't know how you can justify that if you're going to take a moral high ground on cheating within the sport but you really don't care about the character of these guys off the field in any significant way you can't have both ways really well it just means it just shows that you reduce these guys solely to the contents of what you see on the field and you don't see them as people like at all in any way like even the good guys it it speaks badly of your view of them because all you see is like performance and how their way of playing the game spoke to you but i don't know i think that like it it would be it would be nice if the hall of fame at least uh spoke a little bit more about baseball than just what you see on the field i think that there are a lot of great examples you know roberto clemente jackie robinson um kurt flood just like exemplary people um who did things that were very important for the game marvin miller right like you clearly understand the character plays a role in this i just wish you would I wish people would follow through on it. That's sort of my last Beltron take on this. I'm happy to talk David right now. Um, yeah, we can we can run in, in yeah. through uh, next year's ballot. Before we talk about Wright specifically, because I'm sure we got a few minutes of content there, I feel sure. like he can be our remembering guy today. Uh, okay, you're remembering wanna, David Wright? If we want to do that, yeah. Yeah, so, oh, oh, that's fine. Because uh, we got some content there. Next year's ballot, I'm going to run off some names here. Plus what I, I personally think quickly. Yes. Victor Martinez. Yep. Not a Hall of Famer. He'll have an interesting case. I think he'll get a Bobby Abreu case, but I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. Okay. Matt Holiday. Not a Hall of Ra, Famer. Not a Hall of Famer. No. Great player. Not a Hall Great. of Famer. Yeah. Bartolo Colon. No. Probably not a Hall of Famer. Could have been a Hall of Famer. I think the steroid stuff weighs. Yeah. I can't wait till Hector Gomez posts a video of him like striking out 12 year olds and, and talks about how uh, he's either going to the hall of fame or, or going back to the Mets mm -hmm. every year. We get one. Mm -hmm. There's Jose Reyes, not all of Famer. No. Uh, we're going to talk about David Wright in a second. Then we get into the interesting cases mm -hmm. or the just hall of famers. 
uh, Chase Utley. Hall of Famer. Okay. I, so. Sorry. Okay, I, Sorry. I, I, I don't like him, but like, I got, I got to hand it to him. The numbers are not as good as Rollins. They're just not. No, but second base is, uh, I don't know. I think that like. I, I don't know. I'm just not convinced. I, it would take some convincing. I think yeah. he, I think the elite seasons are at the level of production that a Hall of Famer's elite seasons generally need to be at. I'm just not sure that the entire body of work lines up to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, yeah. But that's also a conversation that people are going to have with Joe Maurer, who's the next candidate right. that I want to talk about. I personally think Maurer is a Hall of Famer. I think that we need to weigh catchers a little bit differently. I know that it wound up being so much that about half of his plate appearances came as a first baseman DH as opposed to catcher. But the level, the quality of play as a catcher was so off the charts elite. Yeah. I mean, just 2009 alone. What an incredible season. I I think he's a Hall of Famer. I think he's very he's got he's gonna wind up having a very similar case, I think, to Joey Votto, where hmm. I also think Votto winds up being a Hall of Famer. I just I think he's he was so good at at getting on base. Such a unique skill set. I, I think he's a Hall of Famer. Um, I think, when it's um, when it's all said and done. But yeah. he's not there yet. He's not even retired yet. So that's right. a discourse for for down the road. But I think that I kind of view him and Mauer in the same boat. Whereas they were both just like they had a lot of really good seasons and then like a few elite seasons, but those elite seasons were really, really elite and it carries a bit. But when you consider the body of work in general, it's still really good. And then you add in the fact that Maurer was a catcher and an elite defensive catcher for about a decade. I think he's a Hall of Fame. Okay. I, I probably, well, to your point about Votto, I, I, it's not that I don't think, I think Votto is absolutely Hall of Famer. I think if anything, you're underrating how elite Joey Votto was in the 2010s. Like he had like a 155 OPS plus throughout that decade. Like he was so good at getting on base that like, I think he's, I think he might be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I look at Maurer a little bit more like I look at Ali, but I think there's a very similar case in terms of when you look at and isolate the elite seasons, you look at the position they played. In Maurer's case, it's it's all elevated because catcher is much more demanding than second base. And the transition from catcher to first base, he he managed pretty well. Um, I think he and Utley will be very interesting. Um, I, I sort of look at them the way I look at Roland and, and Andrew Jones as players, obviously, um, where there's going to be a lot of discussion about defense. There's going to be a lot of discussion about longevity. And there's also going to be some really like hair tearing discourse about like MVP voting, because people will mention like Joe Maurer was, M- you know, MVP caliber for like just one year. And it's like, all right, well, like he was playing at the same time as Buster Posey Yadier Molina, right? Like he was, sur- and then the first baseman, when Maurer went to play first base, you mentioned Joey Votto. Um, I mean, like there's definitely more um, that I'm just totally blanking on right now, but yeah. it's more than Joey Votto. Yeah. Paul Goldschmidt, right? I mean, Maurer, a lot of Maurer's really, really good seasons when he was a younger player mm-hmm. were like, prime end of prime a rod years like late 2000s 
Yeah. When A-Rod was still winning MVPs, like, like, right. That's the other thing with the Roland stuff. It's stupid because like, you know, like 13th and MVP voting, like there were, I believe that there were 12 hitters better than Roland. That doesn't mean that like, he's not good. Like, did you see who those 12 hitters were? Yeah. That doesn't mean that he's not a hall of famer. And also doesn't mean that the 12 ahead of him are necessarily hall of famers. Sure. There's more to it than season to season stuff. Then it's also subjective. The voters are kind of stupid sometimes. Yeah. The voters are just going to vote for who they want to vote for. Yeah. They're going to justify it again, as we've been saying this whole time, they're going to justify it, how they're going to justify it. Yeah. And then the last name on the list, before we talk about David, Wright, Uh, Santiago Casilla. Yes. What? No. Slam dunk Hall of Famer, Adrian Beltre. Yes. Slam dunk. I, if, especially if we're really, really taking a hard look at third baseman and, and we're electing Scott Rowland. Adrian Beltre did everything that Scott Rowland did well. Yeah. Even better. Oh, yeah. I'm also the- stoked about the Rowland stuff because Beltre is a shoe in now. And yeah. that makes me happy. I mean, the offense, the baseline offensive numbers are as good, often better than Roland season to season. The defense is just as good, maybe even better. I know Roland had eight gold gloves, whatever. Beltre was also an elite defensive third baseman. Vibes are off the chart. This guy was so good when he was, I mean, he was always really good. He had a couple of down seasons, but he was, when he was good, he was so good and so fun to watch. And, And it lasted really until he decided to hang it up. Yeah. So Hall of Famer, Adrian Beltre. Easy. Easy. Just don't touch his head. And then there's David Wright. Who I I think listen. David Wright is not going to be a Hall of Famer. Yeah. David Wright is probably gonna sit at or around twelve ish percent of the vote for ten years. Like, I think he could last on the ballot the whole time. Okay. But I do not think he ever crosses, like, 30%. Yeah. Listen, he's the Mets' all-time hit leader, number of other offensive categories, second in home runs for a franchise that, you know, has existed since 1962, over 50 years. I mean, the, the elite seasons are there. It's just he doesn't have, and it's not out. It was out of his control. We know that. It's just he yeah. didn't. He didn't put it up for long enough. Yeah, he didn't put up the numbers for long enough. Out of his control. There is the Sandy Koufax argument. However, the Sandy Koufax argument is often predicated on the fact that Sandy Koufax, despite having a short career, was unquestionably at the peak of the sport during his prime. In that short career, David Wright, while a great third baseman, an all star, an MVP candidate for multiple seasons, he was never a top three position player in baseball. Yeah. Yeah. And Koufax also fits that mold that you've set up before that you've mentioned about like you can't tell the story of baseball without him. Uh, like, because he really, in his prime, was like the best left handed pitcher that the game had like ever seen. David Wright, I don't think even like 2006 home run derby, David Wright. Uh, I don't even think that guy was like the best third baseman in baseball, right? Because A Rod was was around, and 
maybe that's not fair because we just did the whole like you can't compare to other people thing so i'll buy that but i think the i would defer then to the longevity issue just because you know you have to you do have to maintain um that's a part of the deal and i'm i'm interested to see because I agree that Wright won't be a Hall of Famer. I'm not so sure that he's going to stick around in a 10% range that long. I think there is a real chance, especially when ballots start to fill up in the later years and you suddenly have to pick 10 guys again and only 10 guys, which, by the way, I think is a very arcane rule. We want to talk about rules that shouldn't be there. That's one that I don't I don't buy. Agree. Um, I think, honestly, and there have been really good players, Sam, who have fallen off the ballot far too early. I think Wright being like a New York athlete is going to help him. I think Met fans will make enough of a stink and put up enough of a campaign that like at least the first five years you'll keep seeing him. But um, I do dread the day that I'm on Twitter and I find out that the guy has fallen off the ballot because it's going to get it's going to be very hard to really reconcile the truth that the guy is in a Hall of Famer. I will say regardless, and then I'll close on this. I'm very grateful that the Wilpons don't own this team anymore because we would not have the number five retired even if like if if they were still in charge. Like the Hall of Fame thing was always kind of a dumb rule. Um, Wright should have his number retired like yesterday. Um, they should they should take care of that. Um, Hall of Fame or no Hall of Fame. Yeah. Can I just, before we really wrap up here, it's so weird he's going to be on a Hall of Fame ballot. Yeah. Yeah, we're old. I remember going to his last game. It it's was a- weird when he turned 40. Like, it was, it's, it's, yeah. It's I'm, very strange. I entered baseball consciousness with him at his prime. So, yeah, for him to, I mean, I, I obviously he's been retired for a number of years now, but like, God, that's weird. Also, five years from me, he retired. That last game was was getting on five years ago in September. Are you kidding me? I'm getting old, yeah. man. Yeah, that was my freshman year of college. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, none of us are like young anymore. I guess that's the big thing. I can't imagine how people feel seeing like you know Scott Rowland in his last year on the, or I guess it wasn't his last. Like Jeff Kent on his last year on the ballot, right? Like. You know, like Mike, our friend Mike Mayer, like probably I'm pretty sure like the Jeff Kent Met era was around the time he started watching the Mets. Like, you know, that book is closing now. Like I'm like in one way, I am kind of excited to actually sit in front of a ballot one day and know the full extent of what I saw with every guy there. Because I really like it's hard for me to make a judgment about Gary Sheffield, to be perfectly honest, because the only thing I saw from Gary Sheffield was like him hitting his 500th home run as a Met, right? Like, and I can't really, that's a limited sample, but um, you know, a full career of David Wright, I can, I can rock with that. I can look at that. Yeah. I think for you and me specific, like our age bracket, we're starting to get close to the era of player where we can say once they arrive on a Hall of Fame ballot that we watch them from beginning to end of career, which is also very, very weird. Like, I remember a lot of Matt Holiday. I remember a lot of David Wright and Jose Reyes. 
remember a lot of Vmart. I remember a lot of Utley, Beltron, Beltre, Beltron 2, Mauer, Bartolo Cologne. I wasn't it's there when these guys, I wasn't paying attention when these guys were making debuts. Yeah. You know, like when Buster Posey shows up on a Hall of Fame ballot in what, three years now? Probably, yeah. I'm going to be able to say that I I was there, not there mm-hmm. physically, but I was paying attention to baseball when he debuted. Yeah. Which is so weird. I don't know. I <laughs> Sending me into a quarter life crisis. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're telling me this for the first time. 24 years old now it's you know scary i don't know I, I don't have much else to add on this whole thing uh yeah we are we are kind of growing up i don't know yeah mets can win a world series now i feel like i've waited long enough yeah they should do that all right well, let's like, wrap up here. yeah let's wrap up here on episode 108 the pleasant good evening podcast thanks for tuning in as we chatted for over an hour about Tommy Pham and prospects the Mets traded and how are they going to fill out the bullpen, which is not an answer we actually got to. I don't think we found the answer to that question. That's okay, though. Uh, And the Hall of Fame. Lots of Hall of Fame chatter today with Scott Rowland going into the Hall of Fame. Again, plugged it at the beginning of the episode. Uh, Check out my article on Mets Legends, uh, the feature I did with former Mets minor leaguer, current minor league free agent, and YouTube video, TikTok video maker guy, side armor, Tom Hackamer. Uh, that's, you can find that on the Twitter sphere or, or on MetsLegends.com. Uh, He's Jack Hendon. I'm Sam Lebowitz. This one's in the books. And Mets fans, have a pleasant week. Oh, oh, oh.